When I did my title this week and posted it, it was Thursday. So yesterday morning when I woke up and I was reading through Facebook and I saw the announcement about Muhammad Ali, I was just kind of really taken aback. And I thought, you know what, I hope nobody misunderstands the title here. You'll, this will make a little more sense, I trust, later on as to the connection with the message. But uh, certainly no disrespect whatsoever is meant toward what I think is one of the greatest boxers of all time. And for all of his uh, braggadocio nature, those of you who were alive then to uh, see the rise of Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali and Howard Cosell, um, it, was, it was just entertaining. And, I mean, it's not like I ever followed boxing or anything. Um, but, you know, once in a lifetime, somebody comes along like a Michael Jordan, right? I can't stand watching basketball on TV. Never have until Michael Jordan was playing. Hockey, forget it, until the great Gretzky was playing. And then uh, golf, <laughs> Tiger Woods. Nicholas was before my time, actually, um, at least when I was paying any attention. No, I'm serious. He was. I, you didn't let me qualify that before I actually started really getting into golf. Man, we're security. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. How would Cosell with the great Muhammad Ali? Anyway, okay. So we're in the Gospel of Mark, Chapter 9. Isn't it, uh, isn't it always easier to look upon and to see and to be mindful of the weaknesses and the foibles in others? The answer is yes. Isn't that what the Lord was saying to us when he asked in Matthew 7, not Mark, Matthew 7, Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? It's a product of what I will label it as our not yet spirit transformed flesh. It's that part of us that, you know, we are all, we are, none of us are perfected this side of heaven. And so with varying, you know, spurts and stints of growth in the Lord as we relinquish control of aspects of our lives and our quirky personalities and all of that unto the Lordship and the rule and the reign of Christ in our lives, we still have that old nature within us that likes to rear its head and the two battle against each other. And I always love the Apostle Paul's um, little dissertation in chapter 7 of the book of Romans on the whole subject of the things that I want to do or the things that I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do are the very things that I do. And you feel his frustration with, with just the battle of walking in obedience to Christ and growing in that. And he finally comes to the end of, of that frustration and he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me? from this body of death. That's the way chapter 7 ends. But then thank God for chapter 8, verse 1. Thanks be to God, to Jesus Christ. And he goes on with the answer to his own question. So we always battle against that flesh. And, and I keep reminding myself of that as I've been going through the Gospel of Mark now for a little over a year. Yes, it's been that long. And I remind myself of that because it is so easy to stand dismayed 
at some of the things that the disciples of Jesus do and say. The account this morning that Mark records for us is one of what, what I think is one of the most outlandish fails of the twelve, and that's saying something when you consider that even Jesus has been dismayed with them on numerous occasions, exclaiming, have you eyes but you cannot see, and ears that you cannot hear? By this time, the disciples have, they've, they've been with Jesus long enough now to have seen many miracles. They've eaten miraculously created bread. They've seen the dead brought back to life. And then just, just very recently, right before the vignette this morning, the three, Peter, James, and John, were on the mountaintop where they had what they called the trans, Mount of Transfiguration, where they saw the supernatural event of Jesus appearing on the mountaintop in in, in what the, the authors have difficulty describing, even his, his demeanor, his raiment, his glow that was about him. There's just, it's a supernatural event. There, were no, there was no, no description for it, anything like it on earth. And Peter, James, and John are there, and they're beholding that. And they're seeing Elijah, who had been dead for centuries. And they're beholding Moses, who is dead for even more centuries. And they're there conversing with each other, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, although we're never privy to what they were talking about. And now on the heels of all of these things, the disciples with Peter, James, and John are in a pretty heated discussion. And it's kind of funny, but as my good friend, the late Rick Jones, used to say, when we'd say something about funny something, he'd say, was it funny, huh, or funny sheesh? This was funny sheesh, not the funny ha kind of way. It's one of those wow moments where wow doesn't mean good. It's like watching one of those YouTube clips, right, of the epic fails of what I call stupid human tricks. The kind of, I, I, and I was actually looking through to try and find something that was really brief and really funny to put up this morning just to kind of, you know, lift things up a little bit. And uh, the first website that I go on, and it was called like Epic Fail Bloopers, or I don't know what it was. But so anyway, I go on there. I go okay. And the first one, the guy ended up dying. The second one, the guy was a quadriplegic. And I'm like, no, 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 this isn't what I'm talking about. I'm not looking for this. You know, I'm looking for the guy. I did find one. I didn't put it up. He was cutting down a tree. I don't know. I don't know why he strikes me as being funny. And his wife is videoing it. And the tree's kind of close to the house. And you know where this is going. Yeah. It was going right on the house. Didn't graze it, right on it. Crash, boom, everything else. And the wife is still videoing. And you hear her say, oh, that's not good. <laughs> oh, I'd like to heard what went on after that. But anyway, yeah, funny sheesh. Well, immediately before this morning's narrative, Jesus has just laid on the disciples again the plight that is before him. What is in his immediate future? And in light of the five times already, in one situation or another, Jesus has expressed dismay that none of the twelve were, were catching on to who Jesus really was and why he was there. The last thing Jesus says to the twelve by Mark before the vignette before us in, in verse 31 of chapter 9 
is the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Now the new vignette. What are the next words that Jesus says to them? We know that they were at Capernaum. And when Jesus was in the house with them, Jesus began to question them. And Jesus says, so uh, what were you guys discussing on the way here? And you know, now, now to me, verse 34 is funny, ha, huh? not funny, sheesh. That's just my weird sense of humor. Because Jesus knows that they've been arguing and he asked, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. Yeah, I guess so. Why? Well, because what they were arguing about was they were discuss, discussing, the word there really means arguing with one another, of which one of them was the greatest. What were you guys discussing? Nothing. But we really know who was the greatest. Anyway, this isn't the first time either that Jesus asked them about something they were talking about or even thinking when he already knew. And so here they're talking about, I'm the great, I'm the great, no, you're the great, no, I'm the great, no, I'm the great, no, you are, no, you are, no, I don't, yeah. Verse 35, sitting down, he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. So Jesus is in the house with the twelve And he takes a seat, which is just the fashion of the rabbis and their method of teaching, and he takes a child that just just happens to be there in the household, and he essentially puts him on display for a moment like, guys, okay, behold, exhibit A. It will help us to understand what Jesus is doing here better if we hear from a historian something about the culture of the day concerning the day's attitudes concerning children. According to Dr. Diane Severance, children along with women and old men were viewed as physically weak burdens on society who had little value to the wider life of the community. In Greece and Rome, it was an accepted practice to abandon unwanted children along the roadsides to die and admonitions against the pagan practices of abortion and child abandonment were found in the earliest Christian writings. And the early Christian attitude toward children was unusual because it recognized the child as a person. Now if we jump ahead, just for the sake of illustration, one chapter in the book of Mark, we see the prevailing societal attitude about children demonstrated by the disciples. Mark 10, verse 13. The people were bringing children to Jesus so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And he said to them, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them. So Jesus 
is there in the house with the disciples. He's seated and he has specimen A standing in front of them, who in the language of verse 35 is the last of all. Last as far as significance, last as far as importance, last as far as value, and according to the culture of the day. And Jesus now takes this one, this child, and he takes him into his arms. Again, let's not lose the whole purpose of this little living lesson, that it is to address the issue at hand, which is the disciples arguing about who is the greatest. Instead of Jesus spitting up in his mouth, as I envision it, knowing what they were squabbling about, he takes the least of them, the child, and he says, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. Now, it's hard for us, again, to truly understand and appreciate the startling nature of Jesus' statement. But remember, well, who's the greatest? Maybe Andrew. Maybe Andrew is there thinking, or maybe one of the reasons he offered to them when they were arguing was, well, I'm the greatest because I'm the one who met Jesus first, which means I've known him the longest, nanny, nanny. Or maybe it was James and John. Maybe they were thinking, look, okay, yeah, you might have known him a little longer, and it wasn't much longer than we did, but when Jesus came along and he invited us to follow him, we left our father. We left the family business to go follow Jesus. And then, of course, Peter could pipe up, probably would have, or did, who knows. And he says, well, yeah, that's, yeah, whatever. He says, but you'll remember that only one of us gave Jesus the right answer. When he asked, who do men say that I am? (laughs) And Jesus loves turning our thinking and our attitudes upside down. And he's already said, if you want to be first, you have to be last. If you want to make yourself, if you want to be the greatest, you have to make yourself the least. Now, given what I've said just already, I'm just curious. When you think about the statement and famous people of faith, what do you think when you consider two famous people of the faith? First version one. And now version two. If you don't recognize her, that's Mother Teresa. Jesus has already made the point, and yet all of what he says contains a lot more than just answering their absurd little argument about who is the greatest. Let's hear it again. Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. So first thing I want to do is just answer, what does it mean when Jesus says, whoever receives a child like this in my name? Well, it means that given the context of first century Capernaum, children, as I already said, were non-entities. They were, in in real ways, they were subhuman, which is why it was accepted in the day It wasn't just done, it was accepted in the day to toss them away on a roadside. And abortion was not, as I already said, was not unknown in the day. Children were expendable. They really were to be seen and not heard. 
And if you know your period history, much the same could be said for women as well. But now Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus elevated the status of children. Jesus elevated the status of women as never before in history. Which is why it is an absolute satanic lie when the rabid feminist of our day charges Christianity with keeping women down. That it's the male religion and the misogynist religion, which means women-hating religion, etc. Jesus, in fact, elevated everybody's status to a place of true equality, having died for all. Men, women, children, Jews, Greeks, in the list of the scriptures, barbarians, Scythians, and slaves... So when a Christ follower in any era understands that everyone is as valuable to the Creator as the next person, scorning someone of whom we have assessed to be of lesser value to the human race and to God, it should affect our thoughts and behaviors in relating to such individuals who have been culturally relegated to a second, third, or fourth tier of humanity. And it should affect our Christ-like behavior to the end that we come beside them and attempt to raise them up to our imagined level of superiority rather than putting them down and keeping them down in that realm of diminished value precisely because we of all people do understand that Jesus really does love them and really did die for them just like he died for you and me. So let me get real here for a moment. You can say ow in advance if you want. Let me step into the world of Facebook for a moment, where a recurrent and popular amusement is to post pictures of what, there's been many, many different ones of them and everything else, typically titled something like, your typical Walmart shoppers. A couple of head nods and then real quiet. Slinking down a little bit in the chair. This is not a drive-by guilting. This is, unfortunately, true confessions. After conviction by the Holy Spirit some time ago, I determined that I would not share them. You on Facebook know what that means much less even click on them anymore. And I am ashamed to admit to you that I used to. Whoever receives one like this in my name receives me. 
So when the follower of Jesus pushes that nasty fleshly response down, allowing the Holy Spirit to elevate that person through our actions, we're not merely accepting that one, but we are accepting Jesus in the process. We are treating them as Jesus would. This is what it means to receive such a one in my name. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He takes it even further. Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Even God the Father. But there's even more here than might meet the eye. And while it is not the primary application of the text, it is a legitimate what I call derivative application, and it's an important one. In our day of religious universalism, that is the mindset that all religions are equal. All religions are true in their own right. All religions are beneficial or not beneficial equally. And at the end of the day, truth be told, everybody's going to heaven. Jesus is clear in this one statement, although he makes others like it, that are even still clearer. For example, the Gospel of John chapter 5 in particular, the whole chapter. I'm just going to give you some sound bites this morning. Suffice it to say that receiving Jesus and Lord as Lord and Savior is the same as receiving God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And equally important, the converse of that is likewise true. Meaning, rejecting Jesus is the same as rejecting God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. All of which means that any religion or religious system that in any way, shape, or form denies Jesus, or lessens Jesus, or redefines Jesus, or remakes Jesus, or sees Jesus in any way less than fully God the Father, by definition does not believe in God. By definition, does not have a saving faith in God. By definition, does not know God and will not escape eternal death away from the presence of God Almighty. And yet another way of saying this, possibly in a more culturally relevant way, is to say that all roads do not lead to heaven. Any worship of a Small g God is not worship of God at all. Sincerity does not change that. Ignorance just does not change that. And a partial belief is no better than no belief at all. Which is to say, to pay allegiance to some other God is to effectively be an atheist without hope of eternity in the presence of God the Son God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. Let me explain, because this is so vitally important and applicable today, yet one more way. The Bible clearly teaches a triune God, that is, God in three persons, not 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in three different segments or portions equally, but fully God, fully Son, and fully Holy Spirit all at the same time. It is not one-third Father, one-third Son, and one-third Holy Spirit. So thinking, well, I have some faith. I mean, I believe certain aspects of what the Bible teaches concerning God. And I believe in some of the attributes of God in the Bible. And because I have some of those things, it makes me okay. And that is patently false, as I will demonstrate. I am consoled by my belief in a God, the person may continue to say, or even my belief in in God, and God is spirit. But I do not believe in the biblically defined and manifested Jesus of Scripture with all of his beliefs, all of his characteristics and attributes and attitudes and commands and actions. It is not as if I believe in two-thirds of God and so I'm all set. It doesn't work that way. Because Jesus is declaring here that to reject any aspect of the revelation of the triune God, three in one, is to completely reject them all. It is all or nothing. And these are not my words. Well, they are my words, but these are not my thoughts on the matter. But God, the Son, himself. Just a few, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. Okay, Jesus didn't come into existence in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. In fact, all things came into being through Jesus Well, I always think of the Creator as, you know, just being God the Father. Well, I know. But that's theologically wrong. And apart from Jesus, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Jesus was life, and the life was the very light of men. We jump down to verse 14. And that word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we see Jesus' glory, glory, as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember Philip's infamous but honest question about Jesus' identity. And he was confused because Jesus was talking, you know, Jesus is supposed to be God, and he's kind of getting that idea. But then again, he's thinking about God the Father. And he's like, look, if you, you know, just show us the Father, and that'll take care of it. And what does Jesus say to him? This is irrefutable and crystalline clarity here. Jesus says to him, have I been so long with you, and yet... You have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So why do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? So whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. 
and all of this previous information in the last few minutes that I just shared with you, I am fully cognizant by experience in the media of the offensive nature of what I just said. You see, a follower of Jesus today can get away with certain things, although it's becoming less and less and less and much more restrictive. The culture is becoming less and less tolerant by the day. But a follower of Jesus today, in certain environments anyway, can still make moral pronouncements or even disparaging comments here and there on the many hot-button social issues of the day. And certainly that will get some people fired up for sure. But I tell you, the most odious, the most offensive, and the blood-boiling statement that a follower of Christ can make today is that Jesus and Jesus alone is the only way to heaven. Jesus said, John fourteen six, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If the world hates you, Jesus said to the twelve, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. So who is the greatest? The greatest is the one who submits himself to everybody else, taken in full counsel of the whole counsel of God's word. doesn't mean you're a doormat, but it means to enter into service for others to the glory of Jesus for the kingdom of heaven and its advancement. I went further in the first service but I can cover that in next week's introduction. So this has probably been a mite confusing. That's my fault. That's not the Scripture's fault. Certainly not God's fault. But as we'll see next week, that the theme continues when the disciples are perturbed that somebody who is not of their little 12-member clique is casting out demons in Jesus' name. And they're not too happy about it. But the Holy Spirit was not bound by the twelve. He was not waiting for things to click on with them so that he could then move to the other, to the rest of humanity. No, God's Spirit was moving all along, even outside of what was happening with the twelve. Who is the greatest? If you want to find your life, you have to lose it. If you want to be the greatest, then be the least. In Jesus' name. Paul, come on up. Let's stand. Dear Lord, gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for the message. Lord, I have found uh, in my time of being a Christian that the longer I am a Christian, the more convinced by things that happen in the world and 
the proofs that prove that the, uh, God's word is true, uh, the longer that I'm a Christian, the deeper my commitment is to you, Lord. So I just pray that each one here, Lord, uh, would use the events of the world and the uh, reading of God's word to prove to themselves that you are the God that you say that you are, Lord. Be with us today as we leave this place. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.